Hi there and welcome to the Money Minutes for another episode. I'm Ross Greenwood. In this podcast series, what I'm going to try and do is not only bring you my insights into where the economy and markets are going right now, but also from time to time, we'll bring you the insights of other people that I've known for a long period during the time that I've done television, radio, magazines, all that type of thing. I've been fairly fortunate to come across some of the best investors in Australia and around the world, and also some of the very best business people in our community as well. This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with one of those people, somebody who I've known for a long, long time, as you'll hear in the conversation that we're about to have. That is Alex Weislitz, who is the head of the Thorny Group of Funds. That's the Thorny Opportunities Fund and also Thorny Technologies. Now, this was actually recorded for his investors. There are around 300 people registered on a, on a Zoom meeting. Um, the audio quality isn't as good as what we would normally expect on the podcast, so bear with that for uh, at least a little bit. But the second part about this is you'll get the insights directly from somebody who is investing right now in what is, as we've discussed, a very difficult stock market. It's hard to reconcile, if you like, where the market is right now with where the economy is. And this means also that many people are perceiving risks in our economy. But what you'll hear from Alex Weislitz is that he still sees that opportunities exist out there, that there are companies that will prosper during these periods. We'll go through some of those companies that he and the funds have specifically invested in. And you'll also hear about why, for many investors, it still becomes a problem with listed investment companies that the price of those companies often trades at less than the asset value of the investments within them. So anyway, sit back and for the next three quarters of an hour or so, you'll have that conversation between myself and Alex Weislitz. You and I have known each other since before the last recession that Australia saw, so almost 30 years or so. Um, And it is interesting to note that when we first met, we were very young men, Um, you know, on our way in the world. But uh, of course, we had to then live and trade through a recession. And of course, many people these days, unless they're working and 50 plus, have never seen a recession in their lives. So just explain some of the things you learned back in the early 1990s that might be relevant to today. Yes, thanks, Ross. And uh, great to have you on board and uh, participating today. And it's it's great uh, having old memories of uh, Times Connected. But uh, we are getting long in the tooth, and I guess, um, so, but uh, with that, uh, hopefully we've got some wisdom and experience, and I think uh, that was a time before trading platforms, uh, social communication around investing and, um, and so on, and we um, had to really probe and dig uh, the information, and uh, it, um, you need to use uh, both uh, aggression at the appropriate time and patience at the appropriate time. And, the thing about um, what happens is, as we most, most of us know, and we need to remind ourselves, usually the gyrations in the downturn happen first in the equity markets. It's a lead indicator, uh, maybe the bond market, but uh, certainly the equity market, and you see a big move there. Then what happens is uh, the impact flows through to the real estate market, which is uh, obviously a critical market in Australia where so much uh, wealth is tied up. Uh, for individuals, and then it flows through to the broader economy as the um, the impacts of uh, uh, stress on the banking system and uh, employment, cash flow, and other measures happen. So there's a reason to be uh, um, cautious about what's happening at the moment, uh, but nonetheless, it doesn't mean that the equity markets can't perform as they have, and we've seen them bounce back from the shock uh, to the system uh, from the February, March uh, period of time. But I would say to everybody out there, um, you need to, of course, stress test every business that you're investing in and uh, as an investor, but more importantly, stress test your own personal and private balance sheets, your business that you're involved in, your work and your free cash flow, your spending habits, to make sure that you're resilient enough to, uh, in fact, survive a recession or indeed a depression if it got to that but not that I'm suggesting it but just make sure you're uh, well provided and if you've got bank debt uh, even in a low interest rate environment doesn't mean you should take it all necessarily but you should certainly know that you can cover the interest payments and uh, and payments in the future so 
Uh, recessions do take a time to unfold. I think going back to the 87 share market crash, um, again, property rolled over in probably 88, 89, and really the recession hit in uh, 89 to sort of 92. So it was almost three years of downturn um, where people, a lot of people suffered from unemployment and just the strain on all their uh, aspects of their personal life, as well as a lot of small businesses and indeed many large businesses had to be recapitalized. Um, the thing is, uh, we've seen recapitalizations already starting to happen in Australia in this last few months. Um, post the GFC, I think we saw over $100 billion of new equity coming into public companies. I think we're already up to uh, 20 to 30 billion in Australia already after a few months. So uh, again, companies can recapitalize. The institutional market is there to support if it's justified, but make sure as individuals, you can do that if you're under stress. Yeah, just a couple of things on, on that. It seems to me that the stock market has had a significant bounce back. And a lot of people have raised questions about uh, the, the, the bounce back from the initial shock of coronavirus, when quite clearly people could see economies locked up for a decade or more. Um, but the bounce back also has been almost as surprising in some ways as the initial downturn. Are you at all concerned about the valuations that many companies have now got in the presumption somehow that life is going to get back to normal, that there's going to be a V-shaped recovery as compared with, say, for example, a reverse L-shaped recovery, which is down and then sideways for a prolonged period of time? Yes, uh, I clearly am, because if you just think in, um, you know, in, investing always goes back to common sense, right? And if you go back, say, six months, before the corona virus, COVID-19 hit us, um, you look at companies and say, what's their state of welfare and how they position? And we're seeing many of those companies go back to the same share price that they were six months ago. And you just simply got to ask yourself, is the world a better place? Is the economy a better place than it was six months ago? And I don't think any single person would say it is, uh, it is as good as it was six months ago. So what's the justification of shares going back up to that same uh, level, as you point out. There are some justifications, but one needs to appreciate them and understand it. Justification is a strange phenomena that we've got led out of the United States, which is the, the balance in big uh, institutional and pension fund portfolios between bonds and equities. So ironically, when equities go down, they say, well, actually we've got a disproportionate level of equities at the moment. We need to buy equities and rebalance it. Now, that's got nothing to do with the fundamentals of the individual companies, but it, it goes around investing in the indexes or ETFs and so on. Uh, the other thing is there was a lot of money in the system. Institutions had a lot of cash on the sideline. Private equity has raised a lot of money in the last few years. Um, and even uh, a lot of retail investors have, in the low interest rate environment, we're sitting on cash wondering what to do. Um, in low interest rates, you can justify higher PEs for some stocks and, and they're still dividend yields, even though they may have come down, for example, the banks, it's still above what you get in the banks um, uh, on deposit rates. So there are those reasons where the market can bounce back and we have seen it bounce back. But at the end of the day, um, you've got to go back to the fundamentals, I think, of the businesses, and that's what we focus on. So yes, enjoy the journey, trade it more, which we're doing, trading more than we usually do. Uh, but I think there will be a day of reckoning at some point. I'm not going to say it's tomorrow or next month, but I think certainly within the space of the next uh, maybe six to 18 months, maybe sooner, there will be, I think, uh, gyrations again on the downside in the market, in my view, as business models are stress tests and we see what's really going to emerge in the new economy uh, post this corona period. One, uh, one observation for you, and this goes back to the last recession, when the 1987 share crash happened, which was then seen to be perhaps the precursor of a depression or serious recession at that time, um, what occurred was that you had a, a situation where government really threw everything they could at the housing market to try and stimulate the housing market. There was inflation that took off. It took some time, really, as you say, for the recession to really bite. And it was only when the Reserve Bank had to pump interest rates to 17% 
to head off that inflation that really the big recession of the 1990s occurred. Here in our current situation, of course, what the government has done is thrown everything at the economy. And you think about, you know, despite the accounting errors that have taken place, think about the, the money, the billions of dollars that have been thrown at the economy. 130 billion originally, even if they come back to $70 billion, it's big money. Job keeper, job seeker, allowing companies to trade insolvent, um, meaning that companies of ASX companies are not subject to class actions for the current time. So all of these things are, are vital to try and, if you like, build the bridge to the other side. But what happens at the point at which government says, well, actually, we can't keep doing this. We've got to let industry back in. There's a point at which, there, as you say, there, there is a point of reckoning, even though Australia, oddly, is in much, much better shape than just about any other developed country yeah. in the world when it comes to coronavirus. Yeah, I think that's a critical point. And um, the stimulus, I mean, that. I think the government has been bold and brave as it needs to be. And... Uh, the real question about stimulus is, does it actually get to the right place at the right time? Um, and uh, we're also seeing it in the context of the US in an election year where stimulus, I think is pretty critical coming into the election cycle and it's likely to continue you know, right up to there. But, um, and I think you mentioned a very interesting word there, which is inflation, which no one has been talking about for the last few years. And this uh, stimulus uh, maybe sets the environment for inflation to re-emerge. And perhaps we're seeing signs of that with a stronger gold price. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I, th I think the gold price and silver price could continue in that context uh, as some sort of defensive uh, measure against uh, a rising inflation. I think that's real. Um, so the stimulus, in, in, uh, it, it, without being too flippant, it's a, it's a bit like a, a sugar candy hit, is what I call it. And it artificially gives companies and individuals a sense of well-being, a sense of um, uh, comfort. And if, in fact, companies um, remain complacent during this period and don't adjust their, their business models or lifestyles and take out the appropriate expenses or work out if they've got the appropriate margin, they will be caught out when that sugar candy gets switched off. Now, uh, as an investor, that's a pretty interesting dilemma you've got because while the sugar candy is on, we've seen the market kick up because everyone say, that's okay. We're in a sense kicking a can down the road and we're waiting to see if that sugar candy, if that stimulus goes to the right place. For example, one of the right places is into infrastructure. Now, infrastructure, which is well needed for a country that's a couple of hundred years old and cities 150 years old, you need to upgrade your bridges and your roads and transport system, and you need to do it in the, in the context of the world we live in uh, today. And in Australia, we have great challenges on that. The electricity and water and uh, all things like that that need to be addressed. That is a productive use of the stimulus. Um, and that creates a multiplier effect through employment and so on. But there's no doubt when that uh, stimulus comes off, and sometimes it comes off quickly, as in the date of JobKeeper, for example, which will eventually have a finite date, uh, then there's a reason to be cautious. The market can perform through that period, but as we're approaching that, I think the harsh reality comes in. And we as an investor, as a manager of uh, Top and Tech, we need to make sure that we've got companies that are resilient to that change that may happen and can go forward and benefit uh, from it. Uh, but there is a reason to be cautious, as you say, with that massive stimulus that's going on. So one of the things I've always, always said when I've spoken to the treasurer, for example, Josh Frydenberg, is really to, to hone in on the infrastructure projects. Now, you make a very good point about that. It's all very well to spend the money, but it is a sugar hit. It is the infrastructure that is the lasting jobs and also the lasting legacy to a government to create, if you like, an asset that is ongoing after, if you like, the stimulus is gone. Now, it's interesting to note, say, for example, that uh, Warren Proud has sent us a note and he said, look, you know, I want, to, want you to talk about some of those infrastructure opportunities. And there's so many of them out there, but the, the question is what they call the so-called shovel-ready opportunities, yes. where you've actually got an ability to start them off and start them immediately without having to go to, say, for example, as in the global financial crisis, the ill-fated pink bat schemes, or, or indeed the school hall schemes, where you're almost trying to create infrastructure for the sake 
of infrastructure itself. But I want to go to the opportunities fund, the top fund, and basically talk about a couple of uh, stocks you've got in there, which obviously are investments designed to take advantage of infrastructure in the future. For you know, and they've they've had differing degrees of uh, of performance. I've got to say, one is Service Stream, um, which I want you to talk about. The other is Deck Mill, which clearly has raised equity and has had issues. Um, in regards to its New Zealand business in recent times. So can you take us through the two of those and where they sit in terms of your belief about government spending yes. on infrastructure in the future? I will, and I'll just step back for one minute as I do that. I mean, Top's focus is usually is uh, premised around looking for value, looking for uh, turnaround situations that we think are mispriced by the market and with... Uh, and where we can be a constructive catalyst to put the support uh, management, indeed uh, replace management if need be, and the board and directors, or certainly challenge them in a positive way to get that turnaround story back on track. So we like something fundamental about the company, the underlying uh, dynamics of it, and uh, we will invest and recapitalize if that's what's needed to them. So Service Stream was such an example five or six years ago. It's, a, it's a, in a way, it's a simple company. It uh, offers a, um, a, a cabling, for example, to uh, the NBN and Telstra. It does the utilities with gas uh, and smart meters, and it implements that, it constructs that. It's a relatively simple business, a lot of tech around it these days, but it had lost its way because it got um, uh, distracted with a losing big uh, contract that it went for, a tender. And that was losing money and they lost their focus on the main business. Four or five years ago at around 20 uh, cents a share, we recapitalized it. We affected uh, change uh, with other shareholders of the leadership, the CEO, uh, the chairman, and we got them to focus uh, back on their core business and focus on getting the margins and the right size. Uh, revenue has grown since then and the company has share prices gone up tenfold. And uh, a very important thing also is we, um, we stayed with the company as its turnaround started going through, we were able to take advantage of it and uh, not trade out quickly. A lot of people make the mistake of uh, trading out their winners too quickly and holding on to their losers for too long in the hope that um, they will turn around at some point. But, uh, we don't believe that hope is a plan. We believe that action is a plan and we make those actions and we push them hard. So Service Stream is still a core part of the top uh, portfolio. We like it as a core business, a billion dollar plus uh, revenues now from uh, when we were talking to them, they were in the tens of millions uh, at the time and a fantastic management team who've proved themselves to be resilient and smart and focused. So. Uh, whilst we have taken money off the table, we have sold out because it became too big a proportionate position. Uh, we still believe in the, in the company and uh, we think they're well positioned as an essential service effectively. Uh, if we turn to Deckmill, Deckmill is a company that was um, active in mining services and more recently has pushed, pushed into the civil space, uh, targeting particularly infrastructure. And they've won quite a lot of work in that regard. Unfortunately, they got caught up with a uh, bad contract in New Zealand and also with a uh, solar farm here in, uh, in the Sunraysia area. And uh, this is very important. They, um, whilst they're disputing it and they do believe that they will uh, recover a fair amount of money, what I was saying is earlier is has the balance sheet got enough strength to take a shock to the system? And we're in a market where shocks to the system are happening regularly. Um, both globally and to individual companies. So they were forced into a position to, um, in order to maintain their standings and be able to bid for government work, lucrative government work in the infrastructure to strengthen their balance sheet. Now we know the company, we believe they needed to make some uh, changes, which they have at the leadership level and uh, probably will make some more at the board level over time. But we anchored the capital raising and we had sufficient cash reserves in top to be able to do that, average our price right down, and we feel confident that they will still be successful in this infrastructure spend. So they turn around and we will uh, hopefully ride that wave up. So we're pretty happy 
Uh, we're not happy that they had to do that, but we understand the circumstances they got caught out. And we still believe the company is well positioned now following the recapitalization to take advantage of that infrastructure you're talking about. Okay, just a, a couple of things there. We spoke about infrastructure in the terms of the, of the portfolios and so forth, a couple of the, the stocks that uh, the Opportunity Fund has got. But just one point about this is right now, given the current circumstances, and you are cautious, which you admit, as an investor, um, is it really a situation where you've got to be very careful in, in choosing the stocks? I mean, obviously, you're always careful in trying to choose the stocks, but is it a case now where you've really got to be very careful, especially of just avoiding the accident where companies can literally disappear to zero? Yeah, look, I, I don't think it's all that negative. I think uh, you look for uh, the same things that we look for normally in a company. We look for a good, a good business model uh, that has some moats around it, why it can maintain a margin, uh, what's its uh, critical uh, advantage, has it got good management, good leadership, uh, strong, uh, strong earnings profile, uh, and uh, that's what we always look at. Now, we don't mind if it's a turnaround as long as we understand the dynamics of the turnaround because we can make multiples on our money doing that, and we have been doing that for 25 years. That's part of the strength of the Thorny um, uh, professional investment team. Uh, we have seen that. Um, and then you get the mispricing that happened. For example, a, a large position in uh, Thorny Opportunity is a company called AMA, uh, which is a smash panel repair um, a business for cars. Now, before COVID came along, they just made an acquisition to cement their position as the largest player in the Australian market, and the shares were around $1.20, $1.30. COVID came along and everyone said, okay, nobody's going to be driving. Uh, which was true for a period. Um, they've got too much debt. Uh, they can't sustain it. And the shares literally went down by 90%. They went down to, I think, uh, a tenth of the position, 15 cents a share. And uh, we just thought that was uh, not understanding the business model at all. Eventually, cars will get back on the road and we have to be resilient enough. Now they've, uh, they've gone up back from their lower 15 cents to about 65 or 70 cents. So the market does misprice things and uh, a bit of panic comes into it. And that's our job. Understand the company, be prepared for it and buy where we see value really emerges. And that's what we'll continue to do. So um, to some extent, we like the gyrations in the market because it gives us an opportunity to get a position in companies that we believe can perform very well over the next uh, multiple years. And we're not an overnight trader. Our business is to get a good return for shareholders over the next two, three, five years and beyond. And we've, you know, we've proved that over the last five years, I think pre-COVID, we've averaged about 17 or 18 percent uh, return. Um, so we're pretty happy with that, uh, that environment. How important is it now? I mean, a company like AMA is one good example of this, where it may not require a capital raising in the future. But when you're looking out across the portfolio, how is it important as an investor to consider whether you're going to need to chip extra money in in the future to be able to not only fund growth, but even to fund the balance sheet strength of that company? Yeah, there are those raisings. It's very important. You need to understand. A lot of people just look at the earnings profile and concentrate on EBITDA or um, EBITDA to sales or price earnings multiple, and they forget to look at the, uh, the, the liquidity, uh, the liability side of the, and the asset side of the balance sheet. So, and in a crisis, uh, that's what gets caught out uh, because uh, you may be um, not strong enough there and you have to, uh, the banks may require you uh, to uh, strengthen your balance sheet uh, um, and uh, increase shareholders' funds and so on. So uh, it is very important to understand that and to prepare for that when you can see it happening. Now, there is a lot of money to be made in recapitalizations because those companies that are under duress for the raising, uh, they have to raise money at whatever price the market will allow them to. And the institutions have got the upper hand in setting the prices in that case. And so if you can actually get an allocation in a lot of those recapitalizations, you can do quite well because it's uh, perhaps a discount to what fair value is. Um, but you really have to be conscious about that. And those are traditional companies. And then we come to those companies within the sort of thorny technologies uh, framework, which is a broad-based 
diversified technology investor, those companies may not have earnings at all, or they may have revenue, but no uh, cash flow, they're actually cash burning. So how can they continue to try and build their positioning if they don't have cash and they may be forced to do um, raisings and uh, uh, to, to fund survival, but also certainly to f fund uh, growth. I was going to give you one example of that that I want to throw at you, which is a company I like and I've actually been to the factory, seen the way in which they operate and, you know, really smart company. I know you've been there since even the IPO and that is Carbon Revolution. Um, yes. Now, you know, one of the things about that is that you look at the demand for automotive parts and in particular their um, lightweight carbon wheels that they have been, you know, the revolution in the carbon revolution is all about that. Just explain a company such as that and the way in which you think about its need for capital, its need for growth and the way in which it operates into the future. Yes. Uh, well, that's a fascinating company and really one that um, we as Australians should be proud of because it's a world standard innovative technology through carbon, um, carbon uh, fiber application to um, uh, the wheels. The effect of that is it's about 30% uh, lighter than traditional aluminum or steel wheels and with a much higher efficiency level and uh, that goes to uh, fuel efficiency and so other, other things on the vehicle. And they've been managed to uh, attract the, uh, some of the great car automotive companies of the world like Ferrari as their, uh, as their clients. Um, and just going back to the beginning about infrastructure, one of the other thing that governments are going to have to do is encourage manufacturing back into this country. We cannot rely on overseas uh, um, manufacturing uh, totally for things that are critical, for example, pharmaceutical industry or whatever we've seen with the uh, issues in China and so on. Can I just pull you up there? Because I did want to ask about that very early. And it comes back to that issue of China, because clearly we have relied on China largely for manufactured goods. Now there is tension between Australia and China in that relationship. And you make the observation that we may have to start to become more self-reliant. The irony, of course, is that iron ore prices are going through the roof as China again invests in infrastructure and demands more iron ore. And as Brazil, because of coronavirus, can't export yeah. to China. So there is, if you like, almost a little bit of cloudiness in regards to our relationship with China, which then goes back to some of these very good high tech manufacturers in Australia that may become really a future generator of wealth. There may be new sources of wealth for some of these companies. Look, I'm very optimistic about it. And the reason for that is it gives the opportunity for Australia to sort of re-engage in manufacturing, which we used to do a lot. But for, the, for that to happen, the government has to really, again, be bold and brave. They have to tackle industrial reform and allow flexibility in the workforce, uh, similar to what they have in the United States. Uh, they have to tackle the high energy costs, which is a big negative for manufacturing. And we have to tackle the issue of high electricity prices, gas prices, and so forth. Um, but if we do that, and I think we'll need to do that, Manufacturing will come back to Australia, particularly high-tech manufacturing, uh, automated, robotic-led, uh, smart manufacturing, and uh, that will provide um, uh, great employment opportunities, which we need. Uh, our relationship with China will continue. It'll settle down or go through the ups and downs of all diplomatic relationships. At the end of the day, uh, China wants our uh, iron ore because they're uh, expanding their domestic economy. Uh, particularly if they get shunned from the rest of the Western world uh, for a period. So that's good for Australia. And they'll always be after our food and agricultural clean um, uh, products from here, which is another great uh, industry for the future for, uh, for our country. But if we go back then to smart manufacturing, Carbon Revolution is exactly that. And Carbon Revolution, interestingly, is a company we have as an investment, both for tech because of its... Uh, technological advances that it's bringing and innovation and in top because what happened is the share price went down through the uh, through this gyration of the last few months got to a point where it was represented value so uh, when it's value then it comes back into the top framework as an investment so at the moment one of the few companies um, we have in both portfolios and uh, that's a credit to the investment team having identified it from two different uh, perspectives. But it's a fantastic uh, example of what should happen. It's innovation that came out of uh, 
Deakin University in Geelong in the special materials department. Uh, Deakin um, allowed them to create a pilot plant on land they provided right near the university and actually has an equity invested in it. The government got right behind it and gave them some capital to expand and get their first bit of machinery. And then private uh, enterprise like ourselves came in alongside government to build it to the next level. And eventually it went from the pre-IPO stage to a successful uh, IPO uh, last year. And, uh, and the great thing about uh, carbon is it's a world standard technology. Uh, it's a great export opportunity and it is attracting smart people back from the automotive and uh, indeed mission critical airline industry, for example, back to Australia to work and to uh, grow, that, uh, grow that business. And I think we're seeing in this market a lot of expats who want to come back uh, home. And if we can provide them uh, uh, opportunities, their smarts and talent and experience they picked up overseas will we'll make sure Australia remains a great country going forward. So there's a couple of other companies that uh, across both portfolio. Mesoblast is another one that we've talked about. But now I want, to, I want to go to that, if you like, Alex. And the reason is because I want to go to Mesoblast. And the other one I wanted to go to, which I think is very similar, is Zip. Because a little similar to Carbon Revolution, even though the capital base might not be massive in, in any of these situations, they need capital, obviously, to get themselves up and going. But the brilliance of them, to my mind, at least anyway, is their opportunity is beyond Australian shores. In other words, you're seeing Zip now going to the United States, been announced yes. in the last couple of days. Mesoblast is a company which can be distributed. It's in uh, pre, um, uh, uh, pre-FDA approval stage for one of its uh, uh, things in the United States. So in, in these cases, the opportunities lie well beyond Australian shores and well beyond the 25 million Australians here in this country. Well, I think that's right. What I'm encouraged about is that we do have a lot of smarts in this, in this country. We are a leader in the fintech field and within the Thorny Group, that's one of our subspecialties. So we're an early investor in, uh, in Afterpay and in Zip and uh, more recently in a company called uh, QuickFee that we've uh, got in the tech portfolio. In Thorny Opportunities, we have Money3, which is a, a lender in the auto finance uh, business. But um, so these now in this world that we have with innovation is transferable overseas, technology platforms allow that. Uh, if we have a good idea, we can take it to the world. Um, Zip, Afterpay are two great examples in their field um, that they've done that and they've taken the world by surprise and in a, by a storm actually. Um, uh, Zip just made a fantastic move the other day, having built a good market share in Australia. Uh, they positioned themselves last year with a, uh, a shareholding in this company called QuadPay, which has already established a good presence in the United States and, in, and also in the UK. Um, they took advantage of their research of their share price to uh, make that acquisition. And suddenly they've got uh, two and a half, three million global uh, customers. They're in multiple geographies, and I think it's a really exciting story. And it's a story for the time because people are shopping online. Um, question the death of retail stores in the traditional sense, which we're seeing. Uh, but people are still buying and acquiring uh, all sorts of things online. And that trend is probably irreversible. And someone like Zip and Afterpay, they cater to that opportunity. Um, and uh, that's very exciting. And uh, we're happy to have been on board and been on board early and we'll continue. Zip is actually the biggest individual position in the Thorny Technologies portfolio at the moment. Yeah, Lisa I want to Blast go to that point also. Can yeah. I just, because Chris Nasser said as a, a question, he says basically tech's been an early backer of Afterpay, Zip, and Credible amongst other businesses now worth many billions of dollars. The enormous uplift in the value of these companies has not been fully reflected in the tech return. So is tech sufficiently concentrated in its best ideas and is the trading activity in the portfolio leaving money on the table? In other words, is it a situation where these things, it's so large inside the portfolio that you've almost got to let part of them go and let part of the opportunity go, as it were, um, simply because of the, the speed with which they've grown? Yes, that's true. And we've had to do that for a sort of sensible portfolio waiting and indeed uh, sell down some of these things when they have got too large, uh, which I wouldn't do in my private company necessarily. I would just hold them and 
and uh, uh, top is a more concentrated portfolio because uh, working out some of these turnouts take uh, take a couple of years before you get the full value. Tech, we've taken the approach. First of all, it's a boutique fund. It's an opportunity to invest both in uh, listed and unlisted, and we're building an unlisted portfolio with investments in the US and in uh, Israel in particular. And I hope those will be the cream on the cake as they uh, mature over the next two or three or four years. And some of those will uh, you know, be uh, pre-IPOs and some will come to the market. Um, so, uh, and indeed one of the ones, uh, uh, Credit Clear is one we're in, um, is coming to the market probably as an IPO in the next couple of months. Uh, which is again an app for helping people collect their debts in simple terms, uh, just as if as a simple uh, uh, story, really. But it's uh, it's it's for its time. But yes, that that is a challenge. We started off tech and top both as boutique funds to see uh, to boutique pools of capital. Um, I think we could if we had several hundred million dollars more in uh, in tech, and maybe that's what we aspire to over the next few years. Um, we would be able to deploy it. But I think the nature of tech has got uh, more of a speculative and risky uh, element to it. So you do need to have uh, some uh, of a broader diversification in the, in the, um, in the uh, spread of the investments, a real portfolio there because uh, just the nature of the inherent risks in it. And whilst we've been, done very well in picking the winners amongst that, it's true, we haven't really captured the full potential if we had a much more concentrated but the risk reward is uh is a challenge there and we want to make sure tech is around for uh for many 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 years and not run the risk of too skewed a position in case something does go wrong and of yeah. course we do make mistakes like other investors but fortunately we've made uh, we haven't made that many and we've had more winners but if we had a bigger a pool of capital and uh, as i said maybe that's what we aspire to over the next period, uh, we would probably have uh, uh, captured some more of the benefits of uh, the Mesoblast and the Zip and the Afterpays and some of the other ones uh, uh, that we've got in there. It's a good point. So just a, a, another one also on this, because another question on this very same subject, which is um, coming from James Ling, uh, and also Chris Nasser again picks up on this one, uh, and he says he'd like you to address the persistent discount to NTA and any thoughts on how to close that gap for both funds. Now, clearly, if you have got something like, I don't know, a zip or an afterpay, whatever it might be, something that's gone, you know, terrifically well for you. The point is for an investor, you know, the gap between the asset backing and the, and the price is, is a difficulty for management to try and manage, but also for the investors as well. Yeah. Uh, look, that's also a good point. And we've seen a change in the listed investment company um, scenario over the last couple of years um, where um, um, where the uh, previously a lot more were trading at premiums indeed we were at uh, at one stage and then the sector with a couple of failed uh, larger LICs um, um, has got a little bit uh, tainted uh, as well as uh, frankly there's too many LICs in my view a lot of them subscale not performing and, uh, and have put a negative sentiment um, on the sector. And I think what we're gonna see is uh, the start of uh, more consolidation and a reduction of those uh, LICs. And uh, if you like, uh, the strongest will survive and the, uh, the weakest will be absorbed or closed down. And then we'll see their discounts starting to uh, narrow. And indeed those that justify it through their performance will go to a premium with an expectation that they can perform. And um, I'm hoping that we're, we'll be uh, one of those. But what do we do in the meantime? What we do in the meantime is, for example, in top, we've got a buyback uh, on, um, and we're, uh, we're taking advantage ourselves of that discount. We said, look, if we can buy something at 75 or 80 cents in the dollar, why wouldn't we? We know what the portfolio has uh, got in it. We know what its potential. And so we'll do that every day of the week, if we can, uh, absent use of the money for something else. So we've started a buyback there and we have approval to go to a 10% buyback. Um, within tech, uh, uh, again, you're managing uh, our cash flow, but I've been personally buying more tech back um, and increasing my share. I think I'm the largest shareholder in both top and tech. So I'm feeling the effects of the discount as well and the frustration of that. I think what we have to do is probably more of these type of uh, seminars and explain our story 
a little bit uh, better, which we haven't really been an active promoter. We haven't been an active marketer of our, of our story and of our performance. Uh, text performance uh, pre-COVID over the last couple of years since its inception has been over 20% uh, growth in NTA. So we're pretty confident in our team's uh, ability. They have a lot of skill and talent. Ultimately, you've just got to keep performing. And uh, uh, if we can do that, if we can tell our story a bit better, if we can buy back more shares, uh, that gap will uh, narrow. And I said, uh, eventually, I believe it'll go to a premium. But first, let's get rid of that discount. Okay, so now I should actually also point out to people, uh, and that is that this was also scheduled to just go for the half an hour until 10 o'clock. It's now 10 past 10. Uh, so, of course, people will be coming and going as they please. But I think we've still got more questions coming through, uh, which I'll try and get to you from investors, Alex. Um, and also maybe a couple more stocks that uh, we'd like to mention. Uh, one, I should say, is that uh, David uh, Parrish has sent a note saying, I understand that operating an LIC is a dynamic process, but would it be possible to provide a more regular update on the companies rather than having to rely on substantial shareholder notices or to wait for the annual report? The, the question is perhaps more of a process question rather than a webinar question, but is there some issue of either confidentiality or administrative burden that I would understand. In other words, giving investors a, a more real-time view as to what the portfolio looks like. Yeah, I think, as I said, I think we need to communicate uh, better and more regularly. We do do a, a chairman's update, but we probably only do that two or three times a year. Um, I think this technology and the, uh, you know, and the, the Zoom world we're all in now can allow us to do this uh, more often, and we will. There is a sense of confidentiality on some things uh, where we might be accumulating a strategic shareholding uh, that we don't want to disclose until we've achieved that. And uh, so we're quite sensitive uh, to that. That is a reason that we don't uh, disclose uh, in detail or at all some of the positions until we've established them. And we're conscious of that. And uh, you know that's, um, uh, that will still remain a relevant uh, point. But I think uh, we probably uh, should and will do more regular updates to give people more insights into what the portfolio looks like at, uh, in a more dynamic manner. So we'll take that definitely on board. And uh, we had been thinking about that as well. And uh, people have been reaching out to us uh, uh, for that. So we, we, will, we will do that. Excellent. All right. One of the things that I've identified as we've gone through today is some of the, the themes, if you like, that even both the funds have got. One of them clearly is infrastructure. A second one that clearly is a theme for you is the application of technology, both here in Australia, when it comes either to manufacturing or uh, to, uh, say, medical devices, and then the ability to take those to the world. Another one that I identify is clearly the area of financial services. Now, um, we've spoken already about things such as Zip and Afterpay, uh, but if we look at some of the other companies that are around the place, um, you have a look at, say, one example is superannuation and the administration of superannuation and even self-managed superannuation. So the company that sort of fits that bill is one view, um, you know, run by Connie McKay, who I've known for years and years and years since she was at Rothschild and, and BT, Bankers Trust, and also with Ron Dewhurst, the former boss of IOOF, who is uh, yes. the chairman there. Now, it's interesting to note that's something, superannuation is going to be around for a long, long time. It's not disappearing. It's not going anywhere. And if you can tap into that somehow, it's obviously a longer-term growth play for, it, for any investor. Yes, and indeed, uh, we've had a lot of experience before uh, tech was up and running. Uh, we were very active in um, uh, turning around and indeed setting the, um, the, the course of the journey and still a large shareholder um, in a company called Hub, which is a very fast-growing platform business. And when we first invested in it, it had 50 million on the platform. And uh, today it's got uh, in excess of 15 billion on the platform. And as I said, in, in our private company, is still a big shareholder. So we do understand that sector very well. And we have been a supporter of OneView. And OneView sits in top and in tech um, because uh, uh, from the tech, the platform uh, uh, technology characteristics make it a viable candidate. And for top, because the share price uh, fell unwarranted in our view because it got uh, distracted by a sort of a transaction that occurred, which got caught up in a company called Sargon, which has gone through its own uh, um, sort of process through administration, which affected uh, 
the receipt of some uh, of some mon some monies. However, um, so one view was trading, I think, earlier in the year or maybe a year ago at eighty or ninety cents a share, and fell into the teens uh, during this uh, uh, COVID period, and where we've uh, bought more now. It's um, and they've had record numbers on their platform, their record numbers on their um, financial service administration uh, side of the business. So they're performing well at the operational level, very well. And Connie is uh, very experienced, as you say, in, in the team. But the share price went down dramatically over concerns with its transaction with uh, Sargon on a sale uh, of one of their divisions. Uh, we've accumulated more shares across our associated companies where I think a larger shareholder, even slightly larger than Connie herself. And it's attracted a bid through a scheme recently from uh, Iris. Now, it's only taken the bid, uh, uh, whilst it's uh, great that it acknowledged it and it says it's value, um, it's only taken it back to the pre-COVID type of price. So uh, we're happy that they've recognized the opportunity but we don't think that price reflects the uh, true value and the strategic value of what Connie has built. So whilst we're happy to uh, engage with them, uh, we don't think the price on the table is yet sufficient to reward either tech or top shareholders for uh, what we've identified. Great that it's recovered on the basis of the bid, but still not enough to satisfy us uh, in what we know is a, is a um, industry, as you pointed out, with great tailwinds. So, Superannuation is a powerful force in Australia. Uh, you know, it's a several trillion dollar uh, kind of uh, business uh, in terms of its scale. Um, and it's going to uh, keep growing. I think it's been mandated by both sides of government that it's gonna increase, um, you know, to beyond 10%. I think uh, for 25 million population, I think we've got the third largest superannuation pool in the world. So, uh, in, and in fact, crazily, uh, uh, Australia's super um, uh, balances are actually, we're an exporter of capital to other parts of the world. And uh, I believe a lot of that should be redirected to uh, investment in Australia, albeit in partnership with the government for infrastructure and things like that. But it is an industry with great tailwinds, like you say, and we like it and we're gonna keep investing in it. And we don't want to uh, uh, sell out too cheaply if someone identifies the opportunity. So OneView is a good company. It's probably not a well understood company. I think Connie's done a great job operationally, perhaps not as good uh, explaining her story uh, to the investment community. That left the opportunity for Iris, which is a good business itself, to come in and uh, I think be opportunistic. But um, we'll be doing our best to see that they reward shareholders fairly. Okay, a couple of other questions that are, as they're coming through. And it's actually a very similar question in some ways. Uh, and this is from Graham Hand. Given the long-term persistence of the discount to NTA, why not convert the LICs to unlisted funds? And why is there insufficient investor interest to reduce that discount? And the other one similar is, um, would you consider maybe converting the LIC to an active uh, uh, exchange-traded fund to close that massive gap? Is that something that you've thought about at some stage? Well, look, we've seen a couple of other people sort of go down that path um, and uh, never say never. We'll look at all opportunities. At the end of the day, as I said, I'm the largest shareholder, so I want that discount uh, removed uh, as much as anyone, maybe more than anyone, uh, to, to achieve a, a better return. Um, so we're open to all possibilities. But as I say, I think the industry um, is, um, uh, you know, is being written off and it's not, uh, it's not uh, um, dead yet, as Mark Twain said, you know, my uh, death has been recorded too early. So I think there will be consolidation, rationalization. I think the industry will come back. It's still, a, it's still a good vehicle because it does give a daily share price and you can move in and out of the stock as opposed to a fund where you're locked in for five or seven or maybe 10 years and long redemption notices. The advantage is the liquidity and we don't want to give that up to, to investors. They would want to give them a choice all the time to stay with the story or not. So, Yes, uh, uh, we've got to look at whether the discount persists and if the steps we're taking don't um, uh, narrow that discount, uh, then we'll have to look at another way of skinning the cat to 
uh, achieve uh, fair outcomes for uh, investors in both top and tech. But I'm confident that we can do that. And I think, uh, as I said, underlying all of that has got to be their continued performance. If we continue to perform, I think it'll, uh, it'll come through and be reflected eventually. Well, Alex, I've got to say that we've been through a number of the key positions in both uh, Thorny Opportunities and also Thorny Technologies today. We've given your overview of the world in this uh, post-coronavirus economy and uh, what might take place, uh, the cautiousness that you had for many of those areas. Um, but as people have said, even here, a way of being able to communicate directly, and this is where the technology is obviously um, just aided us so many times. We have so many more questions that have come through. Obviously, the team will try and get to those as they possibly can. Uh, but I think what we might do is just break it here, let it go. And uh, Alex, I really appreciate your time and in thoughts today. I'm certain all of the investors do as well. And so on behalf of the Thorny Opportunities and Thorny Technologies shareholders, thanks for your time and we'll see you very shortly. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Ross. And just to finish off, I mean, um, the world is changing. The world is changing fast. Um, technology will um, power forward. Um, there are companies that are going to be able to take advantage of um, what's the pressure on all um, medical, life sciences companies, telehealth. Um, a company we've got, Dubber, which takes advantage of recording a, a conversation, which is great for remote workplaces. Uh, Zip uh, Afterpay, which reflects the new sort of buying. A paradigm that has emerged for people online. There are going to be plenty of uh, winners in that area. Uh, the traditional companies, those are the robust enough, uh, good leadership always is important. We try to back that, strong balance sheets. Those that can position themselves will still flourish through this period. And uh, frankly, the weaker companies will disappear uh, or be absorbed by those who are stronger. So we're excited. There's plenty of opportunities. Uh, we're here for the long term. So that's the conversation with Alex Weisslitz from Thorny. I look forward to bringing you more interviews with business leaders and investment managers in the future as well via the Money Minutes. Of course, you can download us through all of the typical podcast platforms that you've got. And I look forward to your feedback via social media, through Facebook and or Twitter. Talk soon.